Hello again and welcome to the Aurelius Podcast. Zach Naylor here, co-founder and CEO at Aurelius, the user research and insights tool for design and product teams. This episode, we had a chance to chat with Mariah Hay. She's the VP of product at Pluralsight, an online education company that offers a variety of video training courses for software developers, IT administrators, and creative professionals. We had a wonderful conversation about the work she's doing there, which focused around how she's building a customer feedback loop and doing UX and design at scale in a fast-growing software company. Part of this, as naturally happens, led us to discussing user research and customer feedback as part of that customer feedback loop and how she and her teams are doing user research and applying it to the designs and product decisions they're making at even the highest levels of the company. Finally, we dove into a really, really fascinating topic that's been on my mind around how to include developers and technology team members in research and the value of doing so. It was a great conversation with solid takeaways for both individual practitioners as well as design leaders alike. I really hope you enjoy it. I'll also mention that if you're on a team doing any sort of user research and customer feedback, you should check out what we're doing here at Aurelius. We help you add, tag, organize, and search all of your user research notes and customer feedback in one place so you can create those key insights and share them with your team so you can make that research actionable in making better design, product, and feature decisions together. Go check us out for free with our 14-day trial, and let me know what you think. You can go to AureliusLab.com. That is www.A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. All right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to Aurelius Podcast, episode 19 with Mariah Hay. She is the VP of product at Pluralsight, an all-around passionate product person. Mariah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to talk with you here. And so to just to, to dive in and give people you know, an idea of sort of where your head's at and what parts of product you are passionate about, maybe talk a little bit about the work you're doing uh, lately. Absolutely. Well, for anybody that out there that has not met me, um, you need to know one thing about me. I am absolutely in love with human-centered design, and that's really where I started my journey towards product. Um, I started out as an uh, industrial designer, so I have my master's in physical product development. And the thing that I always loved about it was not the mass producing of, of items or materials or, or even, you know, you get some of the car designers out there that are just obsessed with transportation, automotive design. I loved learning about humans and the context in which they needed to use products and how to create products properly. And for me, I've, I feel really lucky because I kind of came along at a point in my career where, uh, you know, the B2C app market kind of hit this upswing about a decade ago with the, with the iPhone and the advent of all of the apps in the app store. Um, and my skills have translated nicely into digital and online to be able to satisfy awesome product requirements for folks at, at a much larger scale than you do with physical product development. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think we hear folks in our industry definitely coming from the industrial design background, which uh, has you know long since been established that it lends itself as a nice transition. But I really like the fact that you called out you get to have an impact at a greater scale. Uh, I, I've not actually heard that from a, a, a former or maybe recovering industrial designer, <laughs> as it were. Uh, I'm kind of curious, like maybe what's, uh, what was appealing to you about that? Yeah, that is a really great question. Um, when it comes to comparing industrial design to digital development and software, um, there's a couple marked differences. A is the cycle of creation is a lot shorter. So you can get things out into market, you can test them, you don't have to invest so much time and effort. Um, and because of that, people are less concerned about um, sharing with each other within competitive markets what they're working on because it's much faster to get out. Unlike R&D at a company like Apple, when you think about the actual iPhone itself, um, the design, creation, and manufacturing, and engineering of something like that just takes so much longer so it's easier to copy, which is why copyright and and patents are such a big deal in that space and not in this one. Um, but apart from kind of a sped up cycle, 
um, you also are hitting a whole lot more users a lot faster. Again, when you think about physical product, you, you're limited by the distribution and reach and countries and tariffs and things like that. But when it comes to, to software, um, I can tomorrow press a button on something we're trying to deliver. It can be a small experience and it can hit, you know, 5 million users that day. So uh, you get user feedback in a, in a much more expedited fashion than you do with the physical product development. And so you can really make those changes and, and observe human behavior and apply it um, really almost in real time. I really, really enjoy that answer. I have a couple follow-up questions to that, but before we even dig into those, I'm curious, Mariah, if you could give people a little bit of background, too, about Pluralsight and the work that you're doing there. Absolutely. Um, Pluralsight has a, been a really exciting company for me to work with. I joined them probably a little over two years ago, um, and our mission is to truly democratize technology. And while that seems like a, a lofty idea, the nuts and bolts of what we're doing is um, we're providing some of the most crucial up-to-date training for people that work in technology in a real-time asynchronous fashion on our platform. So if you work in technology and you're a learner, you could subscribe to us and for a very, very low cost compared to other mechanisms of getting training, um, $30 a month I think right now for, uh, for most of our learners, is uh, you get these cutting-edge courses from people that are actually working in the field. Um, and so we're providing that, we're providing different mechanisms uh, for learning, so it's not just video courses, we're, we're now have introduced projects on our platform so you can build something end-to-end -end and receive kind of real-time feedback uh, from our tool to tell you what you're doing right or wrong. And now we're, we're about to um, introduce interactive courses on our, our platform. We acquired a company called Code School a number of years ago, and they have an amazingly smart team, and they've helped us kind of implement the next version of what interactive could learning could be on our platform. And so, you know, that's kind of the nuts and bolts of what we're, we want to do. But when you think about the impact, providing this type of um, education to folks um, in a really inexpensive way across the globe, that impact it can have, it can take somebody's life and, and completely change the way you can provide from your family, um, access to topics that you could uh, be interested in, engage with at any age. Um, and really change the landscape of what modern education could be for an industry that's moving faster than any other. Yeah. Well, that, that's, so that's really fascinating because as we know, and I'm sure that you've experienced yourself, this is already actually happening in our very own industry with UX design and even product management. There's a lot of these, uh, ad hoc isn't the right word, but uh, boot camp pop-up type you know, learning experiences that are greatly accelerated, abbreviated, maybe condensed, whatever the right word is to get people to that place where they can actually start maybe applying that and having an impact with the things that they've learned in that way faster. You know, that comes back to the theme of one of the reasons why, you know, you yourself uh, enjoy perhaps experience design product management, product strategy in this world as opposed to industrial. There were two things from your answer that I, I, I took his themes that I would love to talk with you more about. The first one is, you know, this speed to iteration and change and testing and like feedback loop. The feedback loop you can close sooner and it, it gets back to you faster. Um, I'd like to talk about that. And then the other one is almost like there's this, this idea that you get to apply design more as the business in the world you live now, whereas industrial design, there was a lot more, there's a lot more things that had to go into a successful product and industrial design was almost just part of it where now it sounds like the design is the business in some ways. Let's start with the first piece uh, in terms of the speed to feedback loop, right? That was interesting to you. I'm curious, do you ever struggle with, you know, let's give the example of uh, fail fast, fail often, right? That's something that we say and you chuckle uh, and it's something that we say in software. I'm kind of curious, what's your, what's your take on that? Yeah, you know, the word fail, I, I really don't like the word fail. Um, <laughs> and honestly, most businesses don't like the word fail either. Uh, I prefer the word experiment and iterate because it really is about experimenting and iterating. And honestly, if you are doing human-centered design processes like correctly in your company, you're not failing. What you're doing is you're building on learning. And you're learning and creating and building and learning and creating. And you're creating this virtuous loop of sorts. 
Um, that being said, it doesn't mean that you don't take a gamble from time to time on the level of impact that you think something will have. And maybe to some companies, uh, you could coin the term failure if you don't hit a certain revenue goal or you don't reach so many users or you don't have a certain level of adoption. Um, but if again, if you're doing human-centered design in the right way, uh, you have a much lower risk tolerance there. And so, you know, I, I, when I think about the fail, fail early, fail often stuff, um, I, I don't mind people saying that as long as they're not just throwing their own personal ideas at the wall, which is what I think has happened in tech a lot in the past, where you have um, your CEO or, or leadership, they're just making things up basically based on an idea they had in the shower and, um, or what their wife said, you know, and that's just, that's not a very, um, that's not a, a very powerful way to run a company, particularly once you hit a certain scale as a tech company, maybe if you've got a 10 person team and you're designing for yourself for a problem you've had that works. Um, but once you turn into a grown up company, um, you take gambles, calculated risks, and you iterate through things. Uh, Jeff Bezos, I recently read um, a really, really great article where he talked, it was an interview I think he talked about. Um, we like to really diversify what we're doing and take a lot of those calculated risks, knowing that of, of the portfolio, most of them probably won't end up performing in a way that we want to continue them long term. But oh boy, if you can you know, hit it out of the ballpark. You're not just hitting it out of the ballpark. You're like hitting it out of the universe on what you're doing. And so like, that's my goal as a product person um, is to kind of hit those out of the universe and then um, and, and not completely fall flat on our face. Yeah. Reach the stratosphere. That's, that's a, that's a great example and story to share with that. Okay. So what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is, you know, you would take a particular beef I'm, I'm projecting myself a little bit into your answer right now. You would take a particular beef with the word failure because it's really learning. Um, I, I project myself into that because I agree with you on that front. Uh, in fact, there's a, a talk that I gave recently talking about some of this stuff where uh, the thing that I bring up is I say fail fast and fail often is bullshit because if your, if your goal is to fail, I can almost certainly guarantee you you will meet that goal. <laughs> so, so if you're aiming to fail it's a lot easier to do than to learn what the right things are right and uh and it sounds to me like that's what you're advocating for absolutely 100 percent. very cool and and interestingly i think it actually dovetails into the other thing i wanted to talk with you about which this idea of a quicker iteration it's not failure it's the ability to learn uh, reduce that risk, increase the confidence in decision making faster than perhaps something like an industrial design process. Uh, not that I'm an expert in that. So this brings me to this idea where it, it seems almost to me like human-centered design, it, it is its own business. It is the business in the world we work in. And that world I'm referring to is you know, SaaS companies, software, digital products and services for the most part. It sounds to me like that's that's what really interests you in, in being able to to have design, human-centered design, as you would say it, as the forefront of the business. You know, lots of companies organize themselves in different ways when it comes to philosophy. And I truly believe and have seen and lived company philosophy leads all. And it has to come from the top down. It is the leadership of the company. Some companies are obsessed with um, copying other companies and copying their product. And that can be a good business strategy. You'd be the close, like follow behind. Somebody else has already done the hard work, but you can also follow people that are failing fast. So, you know, you've got that. Um, you've got people that are obsessed with, um, with sales and revenue and what can we do to kind of eke out the next part. Sometimes it works well, sometimes it doesn't. It's kind of a short-sighted goal, in my opinion. But then you have companies that are truly customer-obsessed companies. And those customer-obsessed companies, they really stem from a top-down model of our philosophy is human-centered design. Like, who are our customers? What do they need? How can we serve them? And if it starts and ends with that, um, that's your first piece of the puzzle, uh, in my opinion. Once you have that, the second piece of the puzzle is, well, how do we organize our teams around that? Especially in tech. A lot of tech teams organize around tech production philosophies, not customer philosophies. They might subscribe to one particular tool that they 
live and die by. They might be, oh, we're purely lean or we're, we're agile or we're this or we're that. But none of those things matter if, if that doesn't organize around executing that philosophy. Um, the reason I moved to Utah and joined Pluralsight was I was so excited to see a company that had organized their, their product and development teams and content. Our, our, we create our own content too at Pluralsight. And so we're kind of a weird content as a service, software as a service. And now we're platform as a service because we've got all these enterprise offerings too. So we're in this weird, weird place where we, we do each of those things. Um, but our teams are, are, for the most part, co-located cross-functional teams um, where they're truly making the business decisions based on all of the, the research that they do in their day-to-day. Um, and they're not, it's not me as a leader telling them what to do. They're telling me what they're seeing. Um, and so we have a, such a great vantage point of that. And so if you have your philosophy, you let your team, you organize your teams around executing, and then you have a set of practices, which are the human-centered design practices. What kind of research do you do? What are you looking at? Who are you talking to? How often? How do you use that and break it down to inform what you're working on? If you can triangulate those three things, that's when the magic really happens. Teams are empowered to work to the highest level of their education and ability, and you know, people are very happy and you're doing amazing things and meeting as many customer needs as you possibly can in a most targeted fashion um, to really be successful for your company. Yeah, fantastic. I am very huge fan of everything you just said there. Um, let me just ask you this. So that triangulation, the magic, tell us how you're working to do that or how it's successful and even the struggles of that at plural site. I mean, I can imagine that people are sitting here listening to this conversation. They're going, yeah, great. That's what I want to do. I want to help my company adopt this philosophy of, you know, understanding the problems our customers or our users have and then triangulating, you know, how the business then meets those and how the teams work on those and how we prioritize that stuff. Talk to me about how that's, how you've done that either in the past or at plural site now. Sure. Well, the whole reason I tell people I'm in leadership now is because I was a frustrated individual practitioner who was done managing up when it came to this stuff. I, I realized that you know, individual practitioners, you can be really amazing at your job, but if you're not working in an environment that supports that, there's very little that you can do to organize your whole organization around that in, in a meaningful way. Maybe you can do pockets within an org if you're a large company. Um, but if you have, if you if you can come in as the leader to create this, um, that's what I had spent, you know, my last couple jobs doing. Um, I had uh, my very first leadership opportunity. Like I uh, was brought in by a CTO that I worked with at a previous company, and he he got to this um, healthcare company who will remain nameless uh, that does telemedicine, and he took over their their uh, development team, and he got there, and he said he called me, and he said, Mariah. Nobody is doing the user experience. We don't have anybody. We've got a graphic designer that makes the UI look nice, but he's not doing any research and we're designing healthcare products and people could die. And I'm like, yes, yes, they could. And I should come build this for you. And, you know, that was the opportunity to start understanding the team dynamics and how you can really scale this. And, and that, um, you know, here we are a couple companies later. I've done that at a few companies, um, Pluralsight was in an interesting spot because they were um, kind of growing like crazy, still are year over year, 40% growth. Um, they got to a spot where this, the CEO realized he needed somebody that could come in and really run um, what we now call our experience org, which is product development and content. Um, at the time, he had just come in to run product. This um, Nate Walkingshaw is my chief experience officer. And so he um, he came in and, and he kind of, joined hands with the leadership team and said, okay, if you bring me in, this is how we're going to have to run things. This is how we're going to have to do it. This is the philosophy. And then, you know, he started, he came on, there were only a handful of product people. Um, and he really figured out what the first steps were towards informing the organization about who the user was. And then he started to build the teams around that. And then, you know, once he had the teams adding in the practices, we use something called directed discovery, which is a very specific sequence of um, human-centered design practices uh, that work really well on in our specific uh, industry, on our teams, for our company. Um, and then you can replicate that across teams, and it's really impactful. 
And, uh, you know, I came in, I was person 18 on the product team. Nate had seen me at a conference. I, I evangelized this. I think it's so important. If every company in the world could do this, then I could die happy. And, um, and he said, no, we're, we're doing this in Salt Lake City. We're doing it at this company. And at first I didn't believe him because it really does take uh, kind of that, that effort at the C-suite to align these things. And I just ha haven't seen it many places. And, um, and he finally convinced me to come out and see the teams. And I saw that they were doing it at scale. And, and you know, if we think, you know, back two years ago, I was person 18. I think I just hired our 52nd person wow. um, last week. And so being able to then come in and, I, you know, help him scale that, help build out the infrastructure, making sure that we, as we grow, we add specific um, jobs. Like we, we hired, we um, promoted somebody to a UX practice manager who's, responsible for UX uh, kind of uh, design system stuff across all of the teams. Because when you have 20, 22 odd product teams simultaneously creating and going across one platform, sometimes you need that, but it's only when you hit certain scale points. So right now, like my job is, is making sure we have healthy teams that are following practices um, that are focused on things that align across the, all of them the org, we have a very small leadership team and, and we try to, we try to keep it, you know, um, we don't have a whole lot of upper management. It's our teams, you know, we hire the best people, the best practitioners that can come in, work in their small pods and, and just go and deliver and, um, and just help, help lead to the excitement of the vision of where we're going as a company so that we can empower them to go figure that out. Yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, that's. I mean, it falls in line with all of the research we know about having uh, the smartest and most effective teams, right? As you empower those people to go and solve those problems, that leads me to a few questions. The one in particular being, you know, you talk about doing directed discovery at Pluralsight. For those who may not know what that is, I mean, maybe just a little bit of background, what that means, and and how you apply it at Pluralsight. Sure. So directed discovery when. When you think about human-centered design, there's a couple different things that you go that are part of your mechanical movement of, of gathering information and doing your job. So first you go and you understand what pe who, who the people are you need to talk to and you talk to them and you learn what it's like to walk a mile in their shoes. Um, then you kind of move into a phase where you're, um, you're taking that information and you're, you're crunching it and you're designing things from it and then you go and you test those things. So for us, directed discovery... Um, we've kind of taken those stages and given them names and given them particular practices for each team. So the first thing that we do, uh, we call it VOC, which stands for Voice of Customer. And that's our initial interviews where we talk to people and we learn about their world in, in the context of whatever that specific team is looking at. For example, I've got a team right now that's looking at um, they're our user profile team. And they're going and they're doing VOCs around um, what people are doing with profiles currently out in the wild. Not our profiles, not Pluralsight, but just their profiles, their LinkedIn, their GitHub, you know, whatever is relevant to them and understanding what's meaningful. Um, then they're taking that information, they're crunching it, they're understanding like the pain points and the opportunities that they think uh, we could go tackle as a team. And, um, and then they're, they're taking that and they're creating uh, interactive prototypes and they're going back. To people, not to the original people. We're going back out to our pool pool of people, um, and we're testing different things. Uh, we call that our uh, customer preference testing or our CPTs, um, and we iterate through that. We might iterate through that, you know, 20, 30 times, depending on um, what kind of feedback we're getting. But when we hit kind of an 80% confidence level um, for both, you know, knowing that we're meeting needs with what we're creating. The usability is there, and then there's some kind of emotional engagement. If we if we hit those three things and feel good about them, then we get stuff into code, and we start to build things out. Um, and as we're building these things out, we're releasing little pieces of it out to, um, you know, alpha, beta users in kind of small chunks to start to see some scale at testing because there's only so much one-on-one -on -one, uh, usability testing you can do. Um, and we, we don't move from, like, we start at pre-alpha, that's internal people, then we go to alpha. If it's a learner-facing experience, that's our biggest group of users, maybe that's 5,000 people. It's enough to hit scale, see if there's bugs, see if people are mad at us for doing something, I don't know, whatever. People always, always surprise you um, if you're doing your job right. 
And then, you know, we might release it to another 25,000 after that. But by the time that we get it out onto our platform, um, there's very little left to surprise us at all. In fact, it's very anticlimactic. Um, and it is because we've already know all the things that are going to happen. Nobody's staying up late on a Friday night because we did a big, big release. We release small incremental things all the time across all of our teams. Um, and while that doesn't work for some industries like health tech, it works fine for ours. So that's something that we, we consider. But then once it's out there, really understanding event tracking and just watching what it's how it's performing and really understanding before we release it, what are our metrics of success around this thing that we're putting out there? Um, you might not know that in advance, but at least take a stab and know what you kind of want to measure. I think um, that's been really exciting being at Pluralsight as well because I've worked for much smaller companies in the past. And even in, um, I, I ran a, a branch of an agency for a while. And uh, when you're just doing little projects for other companies, you never get to see that full life cycle. And then maybe something lives out there for like a year or two and then it starts declining and it's time to change it change it up or, or whatever. But um, that's something I really enjoyed seeing that full thing. And I, I really think that um, that part of the tracking, what we can do with data now is so exciting. Stuff that we couldn't do when, when I was in grad school or um, you know, as an industrial designer, even five years ago, we couldn't track data like this on product. So um, that's really kind of, it's going to be a powerful weapon for uh, personalization for users in the future to create an even better experience for them on an individual level, not just for the platform. Totally. Well, so Mariah, a couple of things that I'm pulling out of this too, and uh, all of the awesome stuff that you just shared. The, the first and foremost to me is that the foundation of all of this excellent work, it sounds like you and the Plural Slight team are doing, is grounded in user research, customer research. That's that's the first and foremost, and I would say, you know, a close second is that, uh, you, and you even stated it yourself, is it starts from the top down. It's it's leadership valuing that, and uh, perhaps craving it, wanting to make decisions based on that. You know, so I was just talk to me about how how that happens. Is it luck? Is it is it you know? Is there hope for somebody listening here that says, well? Maybe we're not doing enough research, or I can't convince people that this is applicable, or I can't, I can't really manage up in the way that Mariah did. You know, talk a little bit about that, because because I agree with you, and uh, I guess just to share my own personal opinions on the matter. Obviously, what we do here at Aurelius, we want to help people do research better uh, to get more, you know, shelf life, quote unquote, out of that, and make decisions that are that are there to remove. Uh, risk and increase confidence, just like you said. I mean, we actually use a lot of the same language because we believe that that's what happens. So talk to me about how, how we can make organizations and teams uh, adopt this philosophy, you know, more broadly speaking. Well, we do podcasts. We speak at conferences. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. We talk yeah. about it. We talk about, you know, um, I, I, as we're, if we're moving in the right direction as an industry. I went to um, a CIO-CTO conference uh, early last week and ended up doing a facilitated conversation. We sponsored a, a dinner and had, you know, a half a dozen CEOs there, uh, CTOs rather there. And it's funny because without prompting, and I kept my mouth shut most of the time because it was, we had a facilitator there and I really just wanted to understand what their world was like. At the end, by the end of the conversation, they were having this philosophical argument about how we empower um, teams to do just this. Now, these are our, our CTOs, people historically who have not been focused on, on human-centered design, but have been focused on, well, how do we measure and monitor work productivity factory-like with our developers? Um, so people are starting to talk about it in a real way, and it's not just siloed in the design disciplines and the product disciplines of the world. Um, people are realizing it's a thing. Um, I think that, you know, if you, if you care about this and you're a practitioner um, and you have any inkling to lead, now is the time to step up and start to do it. Um, again, like I was so frustrated as an individual practitioner. I'm like, well, I will just go build this. I will just go lead this because people aren't doing it yet. And companies are realizing this. CTOs are realizing this. CEOs are realizing it. And they're, they're starting to hire people that are smart 
and can come in and do these things and they're starting to hire firms that can help them with these things. Um, I think that, you know, my biggest, uh, besides just being able to educate people um, within companies about how important this is and how much risk it reduces, just really talking about, you know, people have this misnomer that research is some like long academic process, which it's not. Um, and it doesn't have to be specialized. You can teach, a like our developers participate in our directed discovery process. In fact, if they're not, they're not doing their jobs to the fullest extent that they can be. Um, if you don't understand your customer and you work at a company, then you're not being the best employee that you can be. So I would say that this isn't some magical special thing. It's something for everyone. It's something everybody needs to understand and be able to speak to. And while you might not be an expert in data analysis or you know, understanding cohorts, um, you can at least understand, hey, I have this group of users and they all kind of need this thing. Like that's not a hard concept to grasp. So I mean, that, that would be my advice, I suppose, to, uh, to the, our, our listeners at large. Yeah. Well, there was a couple things you said in there that I thought were just absolutely delightful quotes. And I, I won't go back over them because we'll share those things in the show notes. But um, one thing that you touched on is really important to me. And I know, you know, I have actually talked with our CTO, Joseph, about this. And in fact, you know, maybe we will do our own short podcast. We're going to start our own little version of this, um, our insider alias pretty soon. But anyway, one of the things we talked about is uh, exactly what you touched on, helping uh, developers and technologists care about research. Because the thing is, I love the fact that you're telling, you know, you're telling us that Pluralsight as a developer, as an engineer, um, this is part of your job. So that's great because it is that top-down approach, right? It's, it's applied and sort of mandated, may not be the right word. It's a little bit too strict. Uh, but I think you get what I'm saying. But we've been thinking about how we help people, you know, building the thing actively. Engineers, developers care about research more because in my experience, the best ones do. They actually very much crave it because it helps them do their job better. And we know that this is true, but, you know, we're designers, we're product people, we're researchers. How do we help them care about that? more than maybe they do today or help them see how they can, how this is for them, as you would put in your words. Yeah. We, I had a, a, a learning moment the other day, uh, about a year ago, I hired a UX and PM couple, uh, to start looking at kind of a blue sky area for us, not something that we currently had on our platform. And about five months into their, their, their work and research, like we gave them two developers and, um, and the developers who joined this team uh, were told, hey, you know, you probably won't be developing right away. We still have some research to do. We just need your technical expertise and your uh, technical creativity to help us really get over the hump with some of the designing. And in fact, they really did need these people because um, our design team, you know, they had come up with these really amazing but unfeasible ideas from a technical perspective like uh, folks in product can do um, because they're not building it or architecting it. And, um, and it's been about a year now and they figured out what they need to do and the developers are working away. Um, but there was, there was a good quarter there when the development team was not doing what normal developers do, which is just cranking code. Um, and we did a retrospective with the team afterwards to see what did we learn from building a, a net new blue sky team to where they are now when we do it in the future with other teams. And one of the developers said to me, um, most of the discomfort was not around the fact that I wasn't coding, but that I felt like my value to a company is to crank out code. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm not doing my job. I needed permission. I needed to feel like the leadership team didn't think that I was laying down on the job because I wasn't acting like a, a normal developer. And I thought that that was quite insightful because it really does um, speak to the mindset and uh, that has to change in order to encourage these types of behaviors. People will always fall back into what makes them feel useful based on perception, based on history. Um, and you really have to put people in an uncomfortable place in order to have them embrace 
that, that research because, oh, well, I'm not doing my job because I'm spending my time doing the research. Yeah. And, um, and giving people that permission and, um, and accountability to those things uh, really help, is helpful in helping to um, change the mindset and the behavior of teams so that they can, can live and breathe and support that. This is really, really good stuff we're getting into, Mariah, because the permission piece, uh, the first thing that popped into my mind was this idea of like a social contract that we have with the people we work with, right? And so there are, there's like two sides of every coin and how we think people perceive us and how we perceive ourselves and then vice versa, right? And so the, on the developer side, maybe at Pluralsight, as you described, is these folks were saying, I believe people expect of me to be cranking out code. What I want to do myself is absolutely understand our customers and do creative, interesting technology things uh, to serve those needs. But I needed, I needed permission for somebody to say, yes, they also expect that of me. So that it's not two sides of the same coin. It's actually just a shared understanding. This is really, really interesting stuff. You know, t talk to me a little bit more in depth on like how you found this out and then how you addressed that, how you, how you gave them what they felt like they needed was maybe that permission. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I didn't so much as give it to them as kind of like they were, it was, it was just a weird cloud. So I, this all started because their, um, their manager, uh, said, you know, hey, let's have a retrospective. It's, it's been X number of time. Let's talk about how this went. Uh, what went well, what didn't go well. We, you know, we uncovered things like, yeah, oh, we should have brought the developers in sooner. Um, but we also didn't really know what we were getting them into as far as really being hands-off code and really spending time doing other activities, uh, research-based activities. And, you know, it, it was all like this weird perception, almost subconscious perception. They weren't feeling productive, but yet they were feeling productive in these other new things. Um, and, it, you know, I, I wish I had the quote here. I think one of them said, you know, the value I feel like I have to offer an organization is being able to, to build. Um, because I think that's what is expected of me. But now that I've gone through this process, um, I feel a lot more comfortable because nobody has said, hey, you laid down on the job. You didn't do your job. But it, it just is a really, it's an uncomfortable place to be. It's like for me, for example, if, 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 the, the, if it was, uh, the roles were reversed and um, somebody asked me, well, you need to start, you need to come in and help with this coding. And I'd be like, well, I don't really know what I have to offer with that. I, I do product, I do research and I design it and I talk to people and I figure out what it needs to be. Um, but perhaps there would be a situation, and I can only imagine how uncomfortable that would make me feel. But yet, we as our, as as designers and researchers, and product people, we are asking this of people all the time to step into this very uncomfortable area, and we have to have empathy for that and understand what we're asking of them. And we can't get frustrated when we're like, "Oh, well, they just went back to their old jobs, or they kind of didn't really do it, or they didn't think it was important." It's not necessarily those things. Maybe they just couldn't imagine themselves trying to do those things. Yeah. This is, uh, this is such an important conversation. I'm really glad that it naturally led here because I think you're absolutely right in part of that too. And I keep reusing the quote from one of our very brilliant past guests, Christina Woodkey, uh, where she said there's you know a lot of people a lot of designers with empathy for their customer, but none with the, for the people they work with. And that was like ground shaking for me when she said that, because it's so very true. In fact, a, a great deal of the talk I've been giving recently is, is based around that idea that uh, design can only be successful in a business when we understand our business as well as we understand our customers. And it's, it kind of sounds to me like that's what you're talking about here. And, and just being able to understand other people and you know, work with them, meet them where they are uh, to help them understand how what we're doing actually helps or augments or boosts the work that they're doing as well. In development, I think it's a particular issue because tying it all the way back to kind of where we started, Mariah, the fail fast, fail often, I think a lot of that mantra came from because engineering is so uh, uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? So like measurement focused. Oh, I got this much code done. I released this many things. And so that becomes this marker of success when the reality of it is the question, the right question in my opinion should be, did we release the right things? Did we solve the right problems? And we don't often slow down enough to really figure that out. And I agree with you, the most successful and innovative and creative projects I've been a part of had technologists at the beginning of that project then and throughout the duration of it. Yeah, absolutely. And and that measurement focused on are we meeting that outcome? One thing that we've been very focused on over the past year as a product, well, experience organization is, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? And then how do we measure if it's successful? Because it's not about releasing this thing. It's not about shipping it. Because if you don't hit that metric, then it's not useful. For example, um, I have a team that's looking at, uh, we're, we're going to release interactive courses on the platform. And I don't want them to just release this thing and then kind of, okay, what's next? It's shipped. Um, how do we know if it's being successful once it's out there? And so we're starting to look at metrics like, well, what does success look like for our other courses? Well, it means, you know, X number of X percentage of people that start it, finish it. Or on an interactive course, our, our interactive courses are you watch something, you practice something. You watch something, you practice something. Well, if people get through the first, we call them code challenge, the practices, um, then typically we have a very high success rate of finishing them. But if people don't get over that first hump, then they're never going to get there. And if people don't play our courses, it doesn't matter what it is, it's not having a learning impact for our user. It's not accomplishing it. And so really making sure that, you know, the whole team is looking at that. The developers are looking at it, the product manager, the UX designer. Um, and if it's a content-based experience like this one, the, the content person that's on the team as well. And really getting the whole team vested in the success and not the shipment. Yeah, and that's, and that's a huge point to make, right? Because, and you even talked about it, how when you were living in the services-based world at, at an agency or consultancy that you were at, yes, you're right. And, and uh, you know, we often don't have the time to see that through because shipment or, or launching is, that's the end of the project because that's what you got paid for. And an in-house company at, with a team like Pluralsight, well, we're all here to live with the problem. And it is short-sighted, I believe, to launch and walk away and just simply work on the next thing you know whether or not you solved that problem for the people you're trying to serve whether or not you provided value in the way that you intended uh, is a very sophisticated and mature way to consider that and i think that's that's where the most successful companies will be focusing moving forward totally agree i and you know we're not perfect we're still figuring out what all of the event tracking looks like and what the most crucial metrics are um, and what the next step is around looking at even algorithm success when you think about how do you measure, um, you know, AI and machine learning. How do you measure that kind of success? Like, is it doing what it, you want it to do? Is it, you know, understanding what's happening under the hood? Like, we have a long way to go. Um, but I, I'm heartened and I feel like it's, you're either moving in the wrong direction or you're moving in the right direction. And I feel very strongly we're moving in the right direction. Which is a good place to live. <laughs> that, that is a good place to live. Again, that confidence, it reduces the risk that you feel and the confidence in the decision making uh, that you have. So again, I want to come back to this place of, again, particularly customer research and even with this developer slant, right? Talk to us a little bit about how you're doing this. I mean, how are you, how are you conducting this research? How are you turning that into something meaningful that uh, uh, eventually goes into actions or decisions and how are the developers involved in this process? Sure. Well, earlier we talked a little bit about some of our process, the VOC and the CPT, voice of customer and customer preference testing. Um, those are very heavily interview based. And uh, when we're doing VOCs, there's always a, the PM and UX in those. Um, but we rotate developers through them. And developers don't need to sit in every single research session to be able to get the gist because, you know, as uh, product folks, we start seeing patterns and stuff relatively quickly. And, um, and unless you get some very weird outlier person that you talk to, all of those uh, conversations are really helpful for developers, even if they can only hear a few of them. Um, then we get the whole team together uh, and we'll do something called narrative sessions. And narrative sessions basically are 
the team taking all of their things that they've they've thought they've heard while they're having these conversations and creating uh, like narrative stories, if you will, around okay, well this is this is what we've heard. These were the problems. What if we created something that allowed you to do X, Y, and Z to solve that problem? And so they'll start to create these narratives around the product that they're going to go build. And you know, it, they end up getting into very um, low fidelity, you know, wireframes with markers on, on paper. And we encourage everybody to draw. We know not everybody feels very confident in drawing because we kind of beat that out of people in middle school and high school. Um, but we still encourage people to kind of draw these things out. And then that gives the UX designer something really solid to then go and take and start to create the mock-ups from in a very high fidelity way. Um, and then, you know, the those mock-ups uh, are used in CPTs. The developers rotate through those as well. So again, they're getting touch points. They don't need to be involved in all of it. So at a very basic level, like if we don't do anything else, we do that. Um, we have started to get into other more sophisticated ways of breaking down some of this rich qualitative data user journey maps that we can share out as an artifact with people outside of the experience org, things that we can go back and point to, ways to take um, this qualitative data and create some quantity around it and kind of map those out at a very high level statistics, what we're seeing and hearing um, and going through and breaking that down for other people. Uh, we use personas. That's one of was our earliest tool to really make sure that we're talking to the right people in the first place. And we're designing for the right people too. We're designing with them in mind as we're coding, as we're creating prototypes, as we're doing any kind of work. Um, so there's, you know, we've kind of got a grab bag of stuff, but that's that's our basic structure that we tackle and how we uh, involve the developers. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. It, well, and the biggest thing I took away is uh, what we all believe is true anyway, is that including the developer upfront and uh, including them as part of the actual research that gets conducted in many ways just leads to a greater outcome now the way that in which you manage that information and pass it along and share it can and should change depending on who you are and your team and your culture and all that stuff but really making sure that at least someone from that respective area is involved up front seems like that's been leading to the most success for you and your team oh yeah and they'll hear things that the ux and pm won't just because of the lens that they're looking through as a technologist. It's really amazing what you know each individual role will pick up on, which is why it's great to have kind of that portfolio of roles within a team when you're doing this type of research. Absolutely. You know, and even just to share a personal story, something between uh, Joseph and I, we were working on it with Aurelius. So, you know, we specialize in helping people add, tag, organize, search, all of their research notes and feedback, right? And you can create key insights, share that stuff out. One of the conversations we were having recently was the uh, the sharing that stuff out part, right? And being able to like upload documents and artifacts and all that stuff. And we have a solution for that in the product now, but it was interesting because he and I were talking about some customer feedback. And the one thing that he picked out was a very specific technological solution that basically would have would or will uh, we don't know we might still build it uh, become an extremely low cost low resource uh, quote unquote way of achieving multiple solutions with one go. And it wasn't something that I would have ever thought of, even though I talk with our customers nearly every day. But it was you're exactly right. I mean, it was something that he heard where he said actually. If we did this, it would solve A, B, C, and D. And I wasn't even thinking of it as that. I was, again, I was focused on the context of the person, the problem they were trying to solve in the moment. Um, and all of a sudden, we wouldn't have had that opportunity to even have this conversation had he not been involved. Yeah, it's fantastic. That's wonderful. Okay, so, you know, we're kind of coming up on the end of our time, and I would be respectful of that for you, Mariah. Uh, a couple things before we wrap up. I like to ask this because um, it has served me as a good interview question in the past and uh, we started kind of doing it on the podcast to see what we'll pull out of it but let's say everybody listening to this episode over the entire time had short-term amnesia and there's one thing you want them to take away or remember uh, as most important salient point of what you shared what do you think that would be oh well, that's easy human-centered design is for everybody wonderful i love that and i agree with it um, not that that matters, but I definitely agree with it. That's awesome. Okay. Um, 
We're going to kind of wrap up here with Mariah, but is there anything that you would like to share with those folks listening, either about the work you're doing or some things you have coming up? Oh, sure. Um, Well, because I'm such a big design nerd, I like to go talk at conferences about design nerdy stuff, which um, would probably be of interest to this audience. So I do have a a couple upcoming places I'm going to go talk this year. Um, I just do it for fun because I think it's important to share with the industry. Uh, One of them, I was uh, lucky enough to get invited to Enterprise UX, which is in San Francisco uh, this summer. So I'd Google that. And then um, there is also a conference in Charleston, South Carolina this fall called Revolve Conference. Um, Both places would be delightful to go visit as well. I always keep that in mind when I have to travel somewhere, so it doesn't hurt. Um, Charleston's beautiful that time of year. I used to live there, so I know. Um, But yeah, I would, you know... It would be, if any of you uh, show up there, please come introduce yourself. I'm, I'm always excited to meet other people that are excited about product. Fantastic. Uh, and I can vouch for both those locations. We used to summer in uh, South Carolina when I was a kid. Our family was lucky enough to go on vacations in Riddle Beach, so we would travel through those areas. And uh, Very, very wonderful place and wonderful speaker. I have firsthand experience being able to say that as being that Mariah will be at both, and I'm sure that those are going to be awesome events, and uh, definitely go check out her talks. We'll have links to those in the show notes. Um, this has been such a wonderful chat. I think you know the work that, that it sounds like you and your teams are doing at Pluralsight is inspiring and something that we can model ourselves after. I was very happy and honored to be able to have a chat with you about that here on our episode. Well, thank you so much for having me, Zach. Fantastic. All right, everybody, we will see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to our podcast. And also, you can fill out our podcast survey where you can let us know if someone awesome that we should have on the show and even tell us about the things you would want to hear about topics that are interesting for you. You can check that out in the show notes or on our website. Thanks for listening to Aurelius Podcast, talking about product strategy and design strategy. We are the first platform of its kind to help you solve the right problems for your customers and your business and build products and services that truly matter. You can check us out at AureliusLab.com. That is www.A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. You can check us out on Twitter at AureliusLab and Instagram AureliusLab. We'll see you next time.